it's uh, obvious that uh, uh, when we deal with the uh, any book in the Bible, we take some time for introductory matters, and so tonight, a good bit of tonight is going to be taken up with introductory matters, and uh, we will look at the first three chapters uh, briefly. We won't go thoroughly. Uh, we'll give you a feel of those three chapters, uh, but we want you to really get an overall perspective on the book and how to approach it, and there are different approaches, so we have to spend some time on, uh, on that. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, this time together to come and consider your word. We thank you for this revelation, this book uh, that John wrote, the unveiling, Lord, the apocalypse. And uh, we pray that uh, you would use it to help us uh, understand uh, better your will for our lives and the confidence we can have, uh, uh, how we can uh, be assured, Father, of uh, the encouragement you give to your people as to ultimate victory and uh, we would ask that uh, you just use it to build us up spiritually and uh, we ask it in Jesus name Amen Uh, I should have given you an extra page on there for just taking some introductory notes but if you look at the page 3 on your outline there there's some space at the bottom that I believe you can use for this introductory matter if you want to take notes Uh, there are four views of the book of Revelation that everybody tends to fall into one of these approaches to how you approach the book. Uh, The first view is called the preterist view. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. Preterist. And uh, that is the idea that the entire book, uh, except the last several chapters that deal with the return of Christ per se, Uh, You read in uh, chapter 19 where he comes riding on a white horse and so on. And then chapter 20 where you have Satan bound for a thousand years. And then 21, 22, you have the new heavens, new earth. Uh, So everything except right there toward the end, uh, this view would have fulfilled uh, in John's day. These were events of John's day, according to that view. And... uh, Uh, A representative of that view would be J. Adams. J. Adams has been here on occasion. We think of J. Adams as a counselor and uh, and not a biblical uh, uh, scholar as far as dealing with the second coming and so on, those type of things. Uh, But uh, that would be his view in his book, The Time is at Hand. And he puts it like this. He says... uh, The view of the apocalypse, the word, Greek word, revelation, is apocalypse. It means unveiling. The view of the apocalypse, which this book asserts to be true, is that all of the prophecy in the first 19 chapters, and part of that in the 20th, has been fulfilled. Uh, That's uh, that's the preterist view. It says, furthermore, their fulfillment took place in the lifetime to those to whom John wrote, or shortly thereafter and not throughout the entire church age, the age that we're in now. So that's your preterist view. A second view would be the exact opposite, and that's the futurist view, and that would say that everything after chapter 4, verse 1, where John is caught up to heaven, and in that view, that's the rapture of the church. When when you hear, come up here, and John goes up, and he then is in heaven, uh, as far as his, in his vision and all. They said that's the rapture of the church, and so... Everything in the futurist view 
after chapter 3, or chapter 4, verse 1, is after Christ returns and the church is caught up to meet him. That's the futurist view of the book. A lot of your uh, popular stuff would fall into that view. Now, uh, Schofield, for instance, uh, would have that view. And in that view, the seven letters to the seven churches, which we're going to look at in these first three chapters, would be seven periods of church history, each of those churches representing a different period of church history moving forward until the last of the seven. And then at the end of that third chapter and the start of the fourth chapter, you would have the rapture of the church when Christ comes back. Well, uh, uh, some problems with that view and uh, in terms of how you look at the seven churches. For instance, Schofield makes the church at Sardis, uh, uh, which was a dead church. Uh, he makes that refer to the glorious period of the Reformation. That was a dead church. Good grief. Uh, and you can see how you begin to hit problems if you, if you take that view of it. Uh, then you get the, histor- the historicist view. The historicist view is that the whole book is dealing with events in history. And so as you read the book, you need to be figuring out when this uh, star falls into the sea and a third of everything in the sea dies, was that Napoleon or was that Hitler? That's the historicist view. Every one of those types of things in the book is some event in history. And you can see how that really opens Pandora's box. And everybody's going to have a different view of every event described in the book. The final view, and the view which I'm taking, is uh, the idealist view, where it's not dealing with literal events. Of course, you get the literal event of Christ's return and so on. But when a, fall, uh, when a star falls into the sea and a third of the things in the sea die, uh, that's not discar- disturb- describing any one event. That's describing all of God's judgments down through history uh, that would uh, result in maritime uh, tragedies. Uh, all, of, all of the terrible things that happen down through history where a storm destri- destroys a group of ships or something like that, uh, uh, all those events would just be pictured idealistic by this by this star falling that God sends judgment on the earth not final judgment but he sends judgment some of it affects the earth some of it affects the sea etc and that's what's being pictured that's the idealist view now the author of the book John you read about that in chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 4 let's look at the book and notice what he says here about himself and uh, how he came to write this he says uh, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to to his servant John. In verse 4, it says that uh, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So here's John writing the book. That's the same John who was the Apostle John who wrote the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and now the book of Revelation. Now, uh, the 
Uh, when was it written? Uh, well, most writers believe he wrote it around 95 or 96 A.D. Uh, you read about the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was destroyed during Nero's reign in about 64 A.D., but it has been rebuilt by the time this is written. And so, uh, various reasons, John had been banished. He was, uh, <clears throat> uh, during Diocletian's reign, uh, he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. The Roman Empire had become a great antagonist to the church. And uh, you read about John talking when I was on the Isle of Patmos in chapter 17. Now, to whom was it written? Well, it's written to believers in John's day, but in every day, uh, throughout all of church history. Uh, And uh, it's God's answer to the prayers, in a sense, of severely persecuted Christians. Uh, as they were experiencing persecution very much in John's day, but it's for believers throughout the all, of, all of history who will also experience persecution. The purpose of it is to comfort those who are being persecuted for Christ's sake and to strengthen them. Uh, in uh, Hendrickson's book here, uh, More Than Conquerors, which is a commentary on the uh, book of Revelation, He says, the main purpose of the book of Revelation is to comfort the militant church in its struggle against the forces of evil. Now, the theme of the book, if you look at your outline there, we give you the theme. We give you, right off the bat there, uh, Hendrickson's outline of the book. And we're going to take some time and go through this. But notice the theme of the book is the victory of Christ and his church over the dragon, Satan, and his helpers. And the key verse then is Revelation 17:14. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him called and chosen and faithful. That's the key verse, and that's the theme of the book. The victory of Christ and his church over the dragon and his helpers. Now, uh, the, let's take a minute and uh, go through this outline that we've given you there, which is taken from Hendrickson. In effect, uh, we've condensed it. But uh, you get first the struggle on earth, the church persecuted by the world, The church is avenged, protected, and victorious. That's the first 11 chapters. It's picturing the church being persecuted by the world. Uh, And if you look at Roman numeral number 2, it says the deeper spiritual background. Christ and the church persecuted by the dragon and Satan and his helpers. In other words, you get the world persecuting the church in the first part, but then you move to the deeper background, you find out what's... Behind all that is Satan persecuting Christ and uh, uh, <clears throat> the church. And uh, Christ and his church are victorious in chapters 12 to 22. That's the deeper spiritual background. Now let's look back at Roman number 1. You get the first three chapters, Christ in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we'll look at that in just a minute. These seven golden lampstands 
are the seven churches, we're told. Now, numbers are significant in the Bible, and particularly in the book of Revelation. Now, number seven is a number of completeness. It occurs 54 times in the book of Revelation. And thus, the seven churches of Asia picture the whole church. Now, those were real churches. church at Laodicea, the church at Ephesus, and so on. Those were real churches, but they represented the entire church of John's day and the entire church throughout the whole period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. The conditions that we see in those churches, where one of them is backslidden and others persecuted and so on, that represents the conditions that would exist in the whole church throughout the whole period of time between Christ's first coming uh, and his second coming. Uh, and uh, the second you get the book with seven seals in chapters 4 to 7. And it's evident that chapter 4 introduces a new section. John says, after this I looked and so on. And the, the time span again in 4 to 7 is the entire period between uh, Christ's first coming and his second coming. Uh, and uh, the initiating scene there, the first reference to Christ, pictures him as having been slain, but now ruling in heaven. Lo, in the midst of the throne, a lamb as it had been slain. And the final scene depicts the second coming of Christ. Let's look at that. Look at chapter 6 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat's hair. The, the whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree, which shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island were moved from its place. Then the kings and princes of the earth, the generals, the riches, the rich and the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in the caves among the rocks and on the mountains. And they called on the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath is come. Now, that's the second coming of Christ. The earth rolls up, the stars fall, every mountain and island moved out of his way. Here in the sixth chapter, we hit the second coming of Christ. The day of his wrath, and so on. Now, uh, the uh, uh, you get comfort for believers there, terrible uh, terror for unbelievers. Now let's look at the next section, which is chapters 8 to 11, the seven trumpets of judgment. Now these trumpets are under the seventh seal on the book. The time span is felt to be the same as before, as this section closes with a reference to the final judgment. Uh, in chapter 11, verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded, there were great voices saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord. That's the second coming. Again. Uh, and you hit a time span here of 42 months, uh, or 1260 days. Look at chapter 11 in your Bible, in verse 2. It says here that uh, the Gentiles, this is verse 2, will trample the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Okay? 
Uh, here's this time span during which time Jerusalem is trampled for three and a half years or 42 months. Uh, and uh, or that's 1260 days. Now, look at chapter 12. Chapter 12, uh, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun, the moon under her feet, a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven hands, heads and ten horns, seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert, a place prepared for her by God that she might be taken care of three and a half years, 1260 days. Here's that same time period. Now, uh, <clears throat> we backed up to the first coming, the birth of Christ by the woman here. His being caught up, that's his ascension, to God and his throne. Okay? We hit the same time period. The woman uh, flees into a place prepared for God, and she is uh, there for three and a half years. That three and a half years symbolizes the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Again, we've backed up to the start of uh, this period, and we move forward to the end of it again. That happens all the way through the book. The book seven times, in a sense, uh, uh, you back up and you start over. And uh, uh, this is the way we're approaching interpreting the book. That you're not moving straight through history. In other words, the events in chapter 11 don't take place necessarily after events in chapter 10 or chapter 9. So that you're looking at the same landscape. You're looking at the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming, and you're taking different photographs of it from different angles. What's happening? The, the world is persecuting the church during that period of time. Well, first, the church is holding out the light during that period of time, the seven lampstands, okay? Uh, then the world persecutes the church as it holds out the light. Then God judges the world. He doesn't give final judgment, but he gives some judgments of the world during this period of time as the world persecutes the church. Then you move behind the scene, and uh, we find that during this period of time, Satan is uh, stirring up the world to do this, and uh, Christ is protecting his church, and now we're symbolizing it by three and a half years because of a parallel three and a half year period in the Old Testament, uh, during which time the people of God were persecuted, but they were protected in a very unusual way and nourished in an unusual way. You remember in the day of Elijah, when Elijah was uh, uh, fed by a bird there, the ravens brought him food, and uh, when the prophets were hidden out and so on. Uh, and uh, that three and a half year period when the word of God demonstrated its power as it didn't uh, reign for three and a half years, those kind of things, as a parallel uh, to those two periods. So this period is being symbolized by that three and a half years. Of course, we're going to look at this in detail when we get to chapter 12. Uh, but that's the idea. Uh, on our outline here, uh, let's continue moving along just a moment. Uh, <clears throat> And uh, under Roman numeral 2, 
It talks about uh, section 4, the woman and the man-child persecuted by the dragon is helpers, the beast and the harlot. Chapters 12 to 14. And uh, notice it says in under B there, started under A with a reference to the birth of Christ, which we saw. Under B it closes with a second coming. Chapter 14, verse 14, I looked, behold, a white cloud, upon the cloud one like unto the Son of Man, having in his hand a sharp sickle. And he thrust his sickle in the earth, and the earth was reaped. Uh, and so here's this, again, the second coming of Christ. And then in the fifth section, the seven bowls of wrath, chapters 15 and 16, it shows what happens to those having the mark of the beast. And we say, it's felt that this covers the same span of time. Note the closing reference, 1620. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Language descriptive of the second coming. Again, you hit the second coming in that section. And uh, then section 6, the fall of the great harlot, Babylon, and of the beast. Chapters 17 to 19 of the beast. Note the closing reference, 1911. I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. He that sat upon it was called faithful and true. He treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Uh, Clearly a reference to Christ's second coming in judgment. Same span of time, apparently, the entire gospel age. And uh, then the seventh section, chapters 20 to 22, that's where you hit your thousand years that Satan's bound. Does that take place after the second coming of Christ, or does that take place, did that take place at the first coming of Christ? Is Satan bound now? Yes, I believe he is bound now. Not a total binding, a relative binding, like a dog on a long chain. Remember Jesus, uh, he uh, cast demons out and they accused him of doing it by being in league with the devil. And he said, uh, Satan wouldn't cast out Satan, otherwise his kingdom is divided and he can't stand. But if I, by the Spirit of God, cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God come upon you. It's not his kingdom divided, it's my kingdom overcoming his kingdom. He said, how can you enter in the strong man's house and spoil his goods unless first you bind the strong man, then you can spoil his goods. In the illustration, the strong man is Satan. He says, how could I do this unless I had first bound Satan? And so in some sense, he bound Satan at his first coming. And I believe that that's the binding that's referred to there in the uh, 11th, I mean in the 20th chapter of Revelation. And uh, that thousand year period, during which time he's bound, is the same period between the first coming and second coming. Toward the end of the thousand years, he's loosed. And he goes out and he gathers the, the nations for the great battle of Armageddon. And that's what's going to precede immediately his return. And uh, we'll look at that when we get there as to where is that going to take place, who's going to be involved, and that type of thing. So look down at the bottom here of the outline where we say uh, that <clears throat> thus the book consists of seven sections. These seven sections run parallel. Each of them spans the entire gospel age from the first to the second coming of Christ. This period is being viewed from different aspects. Now, it's a progressive parallelism. It's parallelism, but it's a progressive parallelism in a sense of uh, you find that early on the final judgment is introduced and then uh, it's just first announced and no description of it. And then as you move along, you get a pretty thorough description of it and then it takes place and so on. So it's a progressive parallelism as you move along. But still, it is the book is laid out not in a linear way, 
but in a parallel where we keep going back to the first coming and moving to the second coming, going back to the first coming and moving to the second coming. Uh, now, uh, let's take a look at, uh, at the first three chapters. Turn to chapter 1, if you would. Uh, we've seen <clears throat> here the, the theme of this is Christ in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Uh, in uh, verse 4, John says, To the seven churches in the province of Asia. Uh, and he's addressing these seven churches. This would be B, 4 to 6 on your outline there under uh, chapters 1 to 3, Christ in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And uh, he says in uh, verse 4, To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, from the seven spirits before his throne. The seven spirits before his throne would just be the Holy Spirit and uh, all of its varied activities, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. There, of course, is uh, the fact that Jesus Christ will come back. There's the announcement of his second coming. He'll come in the clouds. Every eye will see him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, all those who are not right with him. Now, notice his self-designation in verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. Now, John's commission to write the Apocalypse. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is guiding him in an unusual way here. I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, the voice said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, uh, uh, he uh, has this commission to write. And, uh, and then he sees a vision of the Son of Man. In verse 12, I turned around to see the voice they were speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, like the son of man, uh, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Uh, now, each of those elements there, the garment, uh, he's, God is clothed in light. There's 
girdle, a girdle of righteousness, his white hair, he's the ancient of days, uh, his eternity, his eyes of fire, they're too pure to see iniquity, his feet of brass, he sits as a refiner to purify the voice uh, of the waters there, the seven stars are the messengers uh, of the churches there, of the pastors, let's say, uh, that he holds in his hand. The two-edged sword, of course, is uh, the word of God, but it's also like a rod smiting the earth as he pronounces judgment, and his countenance as the sun. We think of the transfiguration of Jesus when his face shone there. So he's coming to protect, but to purge his church. And he's coming to punish those who are persecuting his church. Now, the result of the vision, John is just overwhelmed, and God comforts him. Uh, He says, uh, uh, do not be afraid. Then he placed me at his right hand, his right hand on me, and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now, what will take place uh, later. Uh, It was for that age. It is for our age. Uh, So uh, he is describing these things. The past, present, and future in relationship to the churches. Now, those seven golden lampstands, of course, picture the seven churches, but they also picture the entire church uh, throughout this entire period of time. Now, you have the seven letters there. Notice in uh, chapter 2, to the angel or the messenger, the pastor, let's say, of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and so on. Uh, And you get seven such letters. Now, we don't have time to look at all those letters. And as we say, those letters, those conditions that are in those churches uh, would picture the conditions that are in the church uh, throughout this whole period of time. Uh, If you look, for instance, at chapter 3, and uh, he talks there, uh, the church at Laodicea, in uh, verse 14, uh, chapter 3, to the angel of the church at Laodicea write, and so on. And uh, notice uh, it says there, uh, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and heat with him, and so on. Uh, back in verse 17, you say, I'm rich and I'm acquired wealth and I do not need anything, but you do not realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes that you can see. Well, that represents a church that a lot of the people in that church are not even spiritually alive. They haven't been born again. They need Christ to come into their hearts. Uh, And always a section of the church is like that. It was in John's day. It is in our day. So these are different conditions. We can't look tonight at all of them in detail, but let's look at one in detail. Let's look at that first one, the church at Ephesus, in detail. Back in chapter 2 and uh, verse 1. The letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Notice to whom it's addressed. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand 
and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This uh, was a commercial city, very commercial. It was corrupt. Uh, It was cultured, a lot like our city made. Uh, And it's addressed to Ephesus. It's addressed to us. Now, the angel here would respond to the Jewish uh, in, in, you know, you had a Jewish reader in the synagogue who was sort of the messenger there, but to the pastor of the church here. The exalted Christ, Christ among the lampstands. Uh, that's the one who's right. And Christ is. He's, he's walking uh, among the lampstands today. He is in the midst of his church, and his eyes see the conditions of the church, and he addresses his church. Now, uh, Notice he starts off and he commends them. In verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. Uh, You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. He commends them for their industry, their hard work, for their intolerance. Uh, notice it says you cannot bear those who claim to be this but are teaching wrong you've tried them uh, for their their false teaching and uh, you found it to be in error and uh, he has a case in point there uh, the Nicolaitans if you look at verse 6 you have found this in your favor you hate I found this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. Uh, These were apparently individuals who encouraged their fellow churchmen to go to idolatrous banquets and commit fornication. And uh, supposedly maybe the fact that we are forgiven and uh, we have liberty and we're free in Christ and meant freedom to do what the world was doing. And he said, no, you hate those kind of teachings and their deeds and I hate it too. So he commends them for trying that teaching and declaring it wrong. So a holy intolerance is needed and he commends them for their intolerance there. Uh, It was a sound church as far as their teaching. Uh, He commends them for their endurance under persecution. But notice he has a charge against them. In every one of these churches, he has a charge against. And here's the charge, verse 4. Yet I have this again, hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Uh, I have this grave thing against you. Uh, love. The mark of a true church. Love. It says you've lost your first love. Now, love is not primarily an emotion. Uh, it's more loyalty. It's uh, more <clears throat> under the control of the will. It's commitment. Uh, you read that First Corinthians 13 about love, and it's not... Uh, so much emotion as its commitment. And uh, the test of our love for the Lord is obedience. He, he says uh, that he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. 
And uh, so <clears throat> uh, they had lost their first love. What is first love? Well, first in time, how they started off. First in importance. Uh, Jesus talks about he that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. First in importance. Uh, and they still loved him. They still loved him, but they didn't love him like they originally loved him. They had lost that intensity, that uh, that uh, sold outness in a sense. They loved him less, and uh, it's grievous. Uh, think about uh, if your wife says, "Look, uh, I, I'm going to stick with you, and I'll work for you, uh, but uh, my heart really isn't so much with you. I, I don't care as much about you as I used to." <coughs> That's not acceptable, is it? Uh, none of us would want that. And the Lord doesn't want that. Bill Gothard gives uh, some evidences of if we've lost our first love. And uh, he lists some, he says, 12 evidences that we've lost our first love. When my soul does not long for times of rich fellowship in God's Word or in prayer, I've lost my first love. When I claim to be the only human... To be only human and easily give in to those things I know displease the Lord, I've lost my first love. Well, I mean, you can't expect me to do that. After all, I am human. Uh, When I do not willingly and cheerfully give to God's work or to the needs of others, I've lost my first love. Remember, Jesus said, I mean, John said, Whoever has this world's good, sees his brother have need, shuts up the bowels of his compassion, how dwells the love of God in him? Uh... When I inwardly strive for the acclaim of this world rather than the approval of the Lord, I've lost my first love. Love not the world, neither things that are in the world, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father but of the world. When I fail to make Christ or His words known because I fear rejection, I've lost my first love. When I'm unable to forgive another for offending me, I've lost my first love. Well, you get some feel of of uh, the type of thing that can be an evidence that we've lost our first love. Now, how did this happen? How did they do that? Were they so busy hating the liberals, the Nicolaitans, or whatever, uh, that uh, they lost their first love? That can happen. That can happen. Uh, Was it pride in past accomplishments? Uh, Was it so busy working for the Lord that no time sitting at his feet and hearing his word, Martha versus Mary. Remember Martha? Can't you see Martha when she's in there and Jesus and the disciples have come and she's in the kitchen and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha needs some help in there. And I wonder what Martha did try to get Mary's attention before she went to Jesus and said, Jesus, why don't you tell Mary to come help me? Don't you care about me? What do you reckon happened before she actually went to Jesus? Can't you see in the kitchen, banging those pans, <laughs> looking out there at Martha, stomping around, walking in, slamming the door, walking out, and finally she just marches right in there. <clears throat> well, we can get so busy serving the Lord that we don't sit at His feet and hear His Word. Uh, maybe some rival love has come in, uh, something, our business, uh, sport, whatever it may be. Uh, No man can serve two masters. Or maybe it's just the little foxes that spoil the vines. Uh, You read about that in Solomon 2, verse 13. Like complaining, 
or murmuring, envy, bitterness, uh, maybe not sharing my faith when I know I should, those kind of things. Okay, anyway, they lost their first love, however it happened. And notice what his counsel or command to them is there. And what they must do and we must do. Uh, he says, remember where you've come from, where you've fallen from. Uh, he says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Remember. Recall how it was. Remember how it was when you came to Christ? Remember that? I remember how it was when you came to Christ. <laughs> uh, you put your beer away. You were drinking beer when I called on you. I remember that. Yeah, okay. Put your playboy away. Okay. <clears throat> uh, I remember when I came to Christ and... Uh, I uh, the first uh, I was a pastor when I came to Christ and and uh, I had the summer there that I wasn't in seminary and I was pastoring the church and I said Lord I'm I, I'm a pastor and they don't need a blind leader of the blind here I need to understand the Bible and so I want you to get me up uh, tomorrow morning at the time you want me to get up the rest of the summer I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you you set the time then I'll set the alarm after that. And you get me up, and I want to get in your word. And I want to, I'll have several hours right there at the start of the day. So you wake me up tomorrow morning. And, and I went to bed late that night. And next morning, my eyes flew open. I looked at my watch. It's 5 a.m. 5 a.m. all summer? Lord, you've got to be kidding. And I thought about that all day. I said, you know, I think I sort of auto-suggested myself into this. Let's do this one more time. So I went to bed late again, and uh, 5 a.m. Uh, next morning, a light plane buzzed the house I was staying in. <laughs> and I woke up, and I looked at my watch, and I said, Good night. And I got up, and all day long, I said, Lord, did you send that plane, or did he just come? And uh, you say, That's not a Presbyterian view. That's all right, anyway. Uh, and so, uh, going to bed that night, I said, Lord, let's do this one more time. Now, I, I'm ready. I, I want to grow, but 5 a.m. all summer? And uh, so the next morning, my eyes flew open. I got to bed early that night. My eyes flew open. It's five after five. Why five after five? I got up and I got awake and I got some coffee and I got in the book and I got blessed. And about eight o'clock, I wandered down to the drugstore to eat. I was a bachelor. And I was sitting there and I looked up and there was a clock on the wall. And my watch was five minutes fast. <laughs> I said, I give up. <laughs> oh, and I grew so much as I got in his word that summer. And uh, I wanted to learn to share my faith. I'd pick up hitchhikers. And I'd say, uh, let me tell you about Jesus. And he said, let me out. <clears throat> and I'd, I'd let him out get me another one. You know, I, I just, I had such a burden to share my faith. And uh, uh, man alive, uh, you can lose that, you know. Uh, and uh, I remember years ago when Dixie... Bull and her husband were first started coming to Briarwood and they were all excited and they would spend a good bit of time at our home and when they'd leave well, we'd always pray together and Barbara and I and Dixie and Howard and, and uh, one night we got ready to pray and they said what do we pray for you for? and I said my heart's like a block of ice pray that God would soften my heart and they said you're the preacher I said that's what makes it so bad <laughs> And so they did. And then I told Barbara, I said, you know, I believe I've neglected uh, spending time with the Lord. I, I need to get up earlier. I need to go back and do first things here. 
and uh, I think it'd help me if you'd do it with me. Would you do that? And she said, sure. And, and so I got up and uh, would spend time and pray and be in the book and, and nothing, just still a block of ice for about three weeks. And then one day, it started melting. Hallelujah! <laughs> Amen. Repent and do first works. That's what we need to do. And the result, by implication, is a renewal of our love. Well, notice why we must do this. In verse 5 there of chapter 2, he says in the last part, he says, uh, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. The congregation may remain intact, and of course, if a person's a true Christian, they're not going to lose their salvation. But a church, a church that's made up of too many folks like that, is going to lose any effectiveness. It, it'll be there, but it's not making any impact. Uh, he'll remove the lampstand in that sense. Uh, and of course, uh, <clears throat> if we weren't true Christians, why, well, uh, then we would fall away and. Now, notice the receiving of life, though, if we do repent and do first works. Verse 7, there he says, uh, He who has an ear, let him hear what the, uh, what the Spirit says to the church. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Salvation is a gift. Uh, it's not something we earn and deserve, but salvation is the Holy Spirit. And one aspect of salvation is the Holy Spirit coming to live in me, and causing me to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not uh, that I don't still sin, I slip in sin, but I don't live in sin. And so we are overcomers. And the evidence that we are true Christians is we live different from the world. And to him that overcomes, I give to eat of the tree of life. In other words, he's the one that goes to heaven. We don't earn salvation, but the road that leads to heaven is the road of obedience, is the road of, of uh, holiness. Uh, without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And, uh, Hebrews 13 there. And uh, so, <clears throat> uh, we, uh, as we walk in the Spirit, as we repent, uh, and He'll work in our hearts to produce that, then we're moving along that road. And uh, He will see to it, and He'll chasten us because He loves us. Uh, <clears throat> what about it? Have you lost your first love? Uh, what do you need to do to repent and do first works? And of course, if you've never been in love to begin with, if you've never received them, you need to start there. Now, let me stop and uh, let you ask questions. This is a real crucial session here because we're laying out our approach to the book. This whole business of whether we're taking a linear approach or whether we're looking at it as a parallel approach where we keep going back over the same thing. Now, let me see what questions you may have. That's different than most books you're going to read. We're not going to take that parallel. All your popular books that you read... Uh, uh, <clears throat> left Behind and those kind of books. Uh, uh, they're not going to take the approach that we're taking here. And we're going to comment on those books as we get to sections that would deal with those books. Uh, we'll refer to them and love to... Uh, I've read some of them. I haven't read all of them, but I've read some of them and uh, be glad to, to field any question. But any question about what we've said tonight? Yes, sir. Uh, From one standpoint, uh, and we'll see this in detail when we get to chapter 11 and chapter 12 where you have the three and a half year period, we'll look at that in detail, Uh, but this period between Christ's first coming and second coming, which has been almost 2,000 years, is symbolized by a three and a half year period in the Old Testament because of certain similarities where the people of God are persecuted but are protected and nourished 
Uh, and uh, while the Word of God demonstrates its power, like it did back in Elijah's day, when the prophets of God were persecuted by Ahab and Jezebel and so on, and yet God nourished them and protected them in a particular way. Uh, and uh, uh, so uh, that's uh, it's, it's similar to that period. So from one standpoint, it symbolizes that period. From another standpoint, it's a long period of time. And so it's symbolized by a thousand years in this long period of time. Uh, okay, other question. The angel of the church, the word angel... Uh, the question is, what do we mean when we refer to the angel, the seven letters to the seven churches, and he addresses each one to the angel of the church? It uh, could be, of course, that we've got angels uh, who are looking after us, which we do, and God's angels are very interested in what takes place and involved in what takes place. But the word angel also means messenger, and uh, so I think the idea is that he's addressing this to the messenger of the church at Ephesus, and uh, he should, the, the messengers should bring this message home to the people of that church and and so on and of course as we say that represents the whole church and conditions that exist in the whole church but uh, we're not saying there's not angels and there's not angels involved we're just saying that the word angel is used here probably as referring to the reader at that church to the pastor of that church uh, who's to convey the message to that church yes Frank you mentioned that Sardis was a dead church at that time right to wake it up. <laughs> uh, he, why would he write a letter to a dead church? Uh, to wake it up, in a sense, uh, to uh, cause it to come alive, uh, to challenge it. Uh, you find all through, uh, as he sends the prophets, he sends them to the nation and calling them to repent, you know, and that's one of the means he uses to wake us up. Because he uses other means, such as discipline, the painful things that come into our lives. But one of the message, one of the things he uses is just... Uh, uh, a strong word to us and maybe he'll cause a passage of scripture to come home or maybe someone will come by and challenge us or something like that so I think that's that's why he would do that any other questions alright well uh, we're going to stop yes sir all the way back well a lot of uh, the question is uh, the question is if this is different from the popular books that are out like left behind and so on what are some other sources that you could get to read up on this view? Uh, <clears throat> the view we're taking, uh, the book of Revelation, is, uh, is a very uh, view of long history and of uh, many, many solid men who believe it. And again, this is not a question of orthodoxy here. We're not dealing with uh, whether this is... This other view is false teaching or something like that. That's not the issue at hand. Uh, and we need to give people room to differ. You get, as far as the uh, different views of the thousand years, you get the pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, uh, and the dispensational pre-mill. You get those four views. And we'll look at those when we get to Revelation 20. Uh, we looked at those uh, several months ago when we were uh, looking at eschatology in general. But we will look at that. But... There are probably not many novels like Left Behind written from the view I'm expressing because this doesn't exactly lend itself to a novel, probably. Uh, but, uh, but there are a lot of helpful commentaries uh, on the view that I'm expressing. Uh, the one, of course, uh, that I think is best is William Hendrickson, More Than Conquerors. Uh, but uh, Leon Morris, somebody here showed me that they've gotten Leon Morris uh, uh, a little earlier. That's his commentary. Or, yes. No, Anthony Holcomb of the Bible in the end times uh, would be one. Or 
uh, Anthony Hokema, The Bible in the Future, I think it is. That's, that's the title of The Bible in the Future. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, uh, just trying to think a number of a number of commentaries uh, in our in our library and in our uh, bookstore would be from this viewpoint. Although we'd also have some some from uh, other people. Take uh, take James Boyce, James Boyce, who's been with us and who writes a lot about these things. He would take a historic premillennial view, and uh, he probably wouldn't take the approach that we're taking here uh, to the whole book of Revelation. Um, but let me let me commend this as a starter for you right here. More than conquer, I think that if you uh, would wade through this, and we got a number of copies of this in the library, uh, I think that uh, that would uh, be helpful. It's out in paperback now. I've got the hardback here, but it's out in paperback. And I'll I'll, I'll, I'll get a list of those and bring it next time I order. Just be able to rattle it off. But I um, can't write this minute. Yes. Okay, that's an excellent question. If if we're in the thousand years now, when is the lion going to lay down with the lamb? You have a prophecy in Isaiah about the day coming when uh, they won't hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and the lion will lay down with the lamb, so on. And uh, uh, that is being fulfilled in principle now. Uh, in principle now, we're part of God's kingdom, and it's a kingdom of peace. Uh, but it's, and Jesus said, My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, so on. It's a kingdom of peace between God and man, and between man and man. But same time, it's not peace between us and the world. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, and to set a man at variance with the members of his own household. So when it talks about this peace that Christ is going to usher in, uh, when he's announced, his birth is announced. There's peace on earth, goodwill toward men is the way it's announced. And when you read about his kingdom, it talks about his kingdom being characterized by peace. In principle, that's being experienced now. And then in fullness, it'd be experienced in the new heavens and the new earth. And from the standpoint that I'm approaching it, when Christ comes back, that's the end of the world. And you get a new heaven and new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, there won't be any sin, there won't be... Uh, anyone who's in rebellion against God and so on, there will be peace at that point. So it's in principle now, but in fulfillment at the return of Christ, that the lion lays down with the lamb. I, sus- I, I hadn't looked at the New Geneva Study Bible in terms of uh, it taking a particular view. It probably explains the different views. I would think uh, that the editors of that uh, more, more or less held my view. Uh, that I hold their view might be a better way of saying it. But, yeah. <laughs> yes. No, it's just the it's just the book itself and the fact that you uh, that you're dealing with with principles here as you read it, and uh, you're not dealing with so much literal events uh, like this star falling into the sea and that. As, you, as we move along and begin to interpret it, you'll see how it all begins to fit together in this approach that we're taking. And you can see how if you want to make that a specific event, that star falling into the water, man alive, everybody's going to interpret every event differently and there's not going to be any agreement on which one of these things was Hitler and which one of these things is Napoleon and, and so on. It just opened Pandora's box. Uh, and so it's not something that Jesus said per se. It's, it's just as you look and dig in, in the book itself. This comes out of that. Okay, we need to wrap it up. Any?
Okay, let's uh, close with prayer. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, the singles are, uh, we've got uh, <clears throat> some uh, uh, dinner for the singles. We invite them to stay, and that's right back behind us here. And uh, if you want to sign up for the course, a table right out there. And uh, and uh, we'll be, we of course are through our introductory matters now, and we'll occasionally refer back to those. But study that outline. Think about that outline and this parallel aspect and the evidence. If we do, if you do keep hitting the second coming of Christ, then obviously you've backed up and started over, you've backed up and started over, you've backed up and started over. So think about that as you meditate on that this week. And let's ask God to really uh, bless us with this. And we'll probably ha- we'll try to have things arranged a little more balanced next week. We appreciate all of you being with us here. Let's have prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church, your people. Thank you for... Uh, giving us insight into things that happen in our world and both the past, the present, and the future. Thank you for the theme here, uh, the victory of Christ and his church over the devil and his angels. And uh, Father, we and his helpers, we pray that we would uh, learn to uh, enter into that victory, to uh, be motivated by that victory, be encouraged by it, and to apply it to everyday living. We pray about uh, our hearts, Father, that we would keep our first love and that where we need to we'd repent and do first works in Jesus name Amen